Well, good morning. It is great to be with you today. If we've not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Corey, and I'm the lead pastor here at GFC, and you're joining us in week three of a series that we're calling Marks of a Disciple. One of the things that we've been doing from the beginning of the year is we've been traveling through the book of Luke, looking at what Luke tells us about the hope of the world, that being Jesus. And now we get to chapter five, and we see that Jesus has spent some time already preparing for ministry, getting ready to spend the next three years of his life doing ministry, culminating with his death and resurrection. And he gets to the point in the beginning of Luke 5 where he starts to call disciples. And so what we've decided to do is we've paused for a few weeks and said, what does it actually look like for people to be a disciple of Jesus? And we said, you know, those guys, the first disciples of Jesus, they had a little bit of an advantage, didn't they? They got to sit with Jesus. They got to have meals with Jesus. They got to look him in the eye. They got to hug him. They got to just spend three full years hanging out with him and understanding who he was. So what we have to do is is depend on guys like Luke and the other disciples who wrote about Jesus and say, what does this look like? And so we've been studying what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we've tried to boil it down to five different things that we believe are absolutely true of people who follow Jesus and would call themselves disciples. And so we're on the fourth one today. The first week, we will put the four up here for you. So the first week we talked about seeking the lost intentionally. Last week we covered two and three. We said we would follow the Holy Spirit relentlessly and obey God's word completely. And then number four, this is what we'll talk about today, that we would love his church wholeheartedly. If you missed any of those first couple of weeks, you can go back, you can listen to them online, wherever you get your podcast, you can also watch them on YouTube. But the conversation today that we're going to have today is about the church. And what role does the church actually play in the life of a follower of Jesus? And there's this tension that kind of exists in culture, Christian culture, not Christian culture, uh, about church and what that means. And it's not just in Christianity, it's in other religions that have to do with worshiping and coming together and there being this organizational piece to ministry. What does that look like and how does that work? And that causes some people to ask this question. Does the church really matter in the life of a disciple? Does it really matter if you're a follower of Jesus and you go to church? I've had a lot of conversations with people about what this means and what this looks like. And some people have said, uh, I can read my Bible. I can pray at home. I don't need to go to church. I can connect with Jesus on my own. I don't need to be a part of the organization or go somewhere where they're going to ask me to serve or ask me to give my money or the pastor's going to do something wrong and I'm going to be frustrated anyway. So, like, I can just do that on my own. I've also had conversations with people. Um, I actually had one, I don't know, it was last summer maybe. Someone just, I've never met this person before. They showed up at the church and they started to just have a conversation with me. And so we just started to talk about church and what that meant. And I said to them, so where do you go to church? Because they said they were checking on different churches in the community. So where have you gone to church? And they looked at me and they just said, well, I haven't found one that's good enough for me, so I don't go. And I just thought, okay, like, I get that. But, like, so there's this tension. There's this idea, like, do I actually, if I have scripture, if I can pray to Jesus on my own, I have the Holy Spirit, I, I am connected to Jesus, do I actually need to go to church? Do I actually need to connect with another group of people or the local church? And, and invest my time and energy in that. And here's, here's what I would say to that. I think this is actually the wrong question to ask. Here's the right question we have to ask if we're disciples of Jesus. Does the church really matter to Jesus? That has to be the question we ask. Because if we're going to be followers of Jesus, it's not whether we think we need it or not. It's whether Jesus does. 
So if Jesus has this connection to church and what he says about church is true, then we have to ask, okay, what does Jesus want from me? And how does he feel about the local church that will inform our decision whether we have anything to do with church or not? So that's the conversation we're going to have today. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, as always, if you would like to follow along with us on the back of your Next Steps card, there's a little QR code. You can scan that with your phone or your tablet. Um, it will take you to our follow-along page, which has all the verses, all the notes. You can submit a prayer request. You can actually email those notes to yourself if you'd like. So you can use that. Or if you've brought a physical Bible, awesome. Or if you want to just follow along on the screen. So Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. Because see, Paul sets the stage for the Ephesians in this chapter and what we're going to talk about. He says this, first of all, Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So he says, we're supposed to look like Jesus. And we would say, yep, makes sense. That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And he says, what Jesus did was he offered himself as a sacrifice. So Paul sets the stage for this conversation saying, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to understand that we're going to have to live sacrificially. We're going to have to offer ourselves to things that we don't necessarily gravitate to. We're going to have to do things in our life that aren't necessarily what we would prefer to do, that we would offer ourselves sacrificially. And then we fast forward a little bit to verse 21. It says, if you know your Bible, right? I already said Ephesians 5. If you know your Bible, you're understanding what passage we're kind of going to here. There might be a little bit of a tension there, but I want to set the stage, okay? What we're going to read next, this is the, the cover-all statement that Paul makes. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So when we get to Ephesians 5, this word submit gets a lot of attention, okay? And a lot of conversation we're going to have about husbands and wives and what that looks like in the picture that Paul gives us here, okay? Here's what I want to set. This is the first blanket statement. He just says to everybody, submit to one another. This is an all play. This isn't just this gender versus this gender. It's it's everybody. It's everybody as he writes to the church of Ephesus. He says, everybody submit to everybody. Why? Live your life sacrificially. That's what he said a few verses before, right? So, okay, so now we've got this connection where we're saying we're going to live sacrificial lives together. We're going to submit to one another, not put my own needs first. And then he goes into this conversation about what this actually looks like. So going ahead in verses 22 to 24, it says, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Verses 25 and 26. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Verse 27. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. Verses 29 and 30. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church, and we as and we are members of his body. And then 31 and 32, this is where he wraps up. As the scriptures say, man leaves his father and mother 
and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are what? One. Does that tell us how Jesus feels about the church? They're one. Just as though those of us who are married, right, we are one with our spouse. And so when we ask this question, we say, how does Jesus feel about the church? We think about, hopefully on a good day, right, how you feel about your spouse, okay? You are one with them. You love them. You do life with them. They are your, hopefully, best friend, right? You enjoy that time. So we can't really mince words on whether we can follow Jesus and be connected to the church because Jesus and the church are here's what I want us to understand. A follower of Jesus cannot truly separate themselves from the church. We can't. Now, we can have that conversation about what that means, global church versus local church and all of that kind of thing. But we can't actually separate ourselves from the church of Christ if we're a follower of Jesus. Nor should we want to. Because Christ and the church are one. But here's what we can do. And I'll give you an illustration in a minute, right? But they can neglect their relationship with Jesus by hating his bride. So here's what I mean, right? Imagine I came to you, and we just got to know each other. I just met you. We've been hanging out, and we got to know each other at church. And I said, hey, let's go out and grab lunch. I'd love to get to know you better. Let's hang out. Let's get coffee, whatever that means. Like, I think it'd be great if we could hang out and spend some more time together. And you're like, great. And I go, just so you know, like, going into this, I don't really like your wife at all. I, I want to hang out with you. But I don't really want to hang out with your wife. I don't really like, uh, she's annoying. So I'm not going to want to hang out like my wife's not going to get together with your wife. Like, we just don't want to do that. Imagine how that would feel to you. Imagine how it would feel to me, right? You're probably going to say that I'm not really that interested in pursuing further conversation because I love my wife and you don't like her. So we can be cordial, but we're probably not going to be best buddies, right? Because I care about my spouse. So imagine when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I love you. I hate your wife. I don't like her. Listen, here's where I, I want to say this. I don't want to get past or gloss over any of the, like, church hurt that we might have. Like, that's real. I get that. Church leaders have done really dumb and immoral things. People in church have done really dumb and immoral things. And people that are hurt by other people in church is a real thing. And, he, and here's what I want to say to you. Okay? Here's two truths I want us to understand. I'll, I'll explain to you. First of all, no church is perfect. None. So a person that's standing out in the carport having a conversation with them, I haven't found a church that's good enough for me. Okay, well, like, no church is going to be perfect. If you want to sit down and have a conversation, we can go, what are the weaknesses of our church? Like, let's talk about that. I, I, we could talk about that. Like, we can figure out things that Pastor Andrew and I are thinking about and the elders are thinking about, how we do, like, if people are just going, oh, there's no problems at our church, that's probably actually a red flag. Like, no church is perfect. Everybody has their struggles. And here's the second thing. Church people are going to hurt you. But here's what I mean by that. And here's where I want to, like, explain it. At some level, we get this with every other relationship. And then sometimes Christians tend to look at church and they go, you hurt me once over this. But we understand this. When we get into a best friendship with somebody, has your best friend ever hurt you before? Probably. Have your siblings ever hurt you before? Probably. 
Have your children ever hurt you? Have your, has your spouse ever hurt you? Like, we get to this point where like, we, don't, we know when we are vulnerable and when we build relationship and we come into relationship with somebody, we understand there's going to be days where we hurt each other. It's not that we want it to happen. It's not that we're okay with it happening. But people just make mistakes. We say something we didn't mean. We do something we didn't mean. Whatever it might be. But then sometimes we look at church and we go, that person hurt me or this thing happened or whatever. And I don't care. And here's what I'm saying. We have to understand that the relationship in church is with a bunch of imperfect people. That we're just trying to all look like Jesus at the same time. And none of us are going to be that perfect. And so the first thing we have to see is that we understand that there's going to be hurt that comes in church sometimes. I'll, I'll say this. I have non-Christian friends. You want to know all the people that have hurt me in probably the last decade are church people. My non-Christian friends have not hurt me at all. Church people, I don't say that to be like, oh, poor Pastor Cole. That's not the point. The point is just to say, when you get into deep relationship with people, they're going to hurt you. And when that, that thing is like church and you're in and you're all in for that, it's just going to happen. But here's the thing. Here's a verse that I think influences the way we process that reality. Romans 5.8 simply says this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus doesn't say to us, don't sin for an entire week and then I will be the sacrifice for you. Like, get your stuff together so that I know you're really serious about it and then I'll die for you. No, he looked at us and said, even though you have not loved me perfectly, you have made mistakes, you denied me, I'm still going to die for you. Live Paul's sin from his heart. Live your life sacrificially as Christ loves the church. This is what that means. Here's what we have to understand. Part of loving the church is loving her in spite of her imperfections. Understanding that none of us are going to be perfect. And saying, even though there's imperfections there, even though there's frustration, even though there's a bunch of imperfect people trying to love Jesus together, we're not always going to be that perfect. And again, here's what I'm not saying. That we gloss over abuse, that we put things aside, that we take immoral things and we say, oh, that's okay, they didn't mean it. We have to address sin when it's in sin. But at the same time, we've got this general understanding of, yeah, there's going to be relationship friction sometimes in church. So, so here's the next question. So then what should church look like? If we're saying we're going to understand that sometimes pain is going to happen, but Jesus loves his church and says that the church is his bride, and so that means that they are one, and so I can't separate Jesus from the church. Okay, so then when I'm looking at church, or I'm looking at what this should look like, or how I should understand church, what should this mean? And I want to go back. We're going to back up a little bit and set this up, okay? We're going to go back to my guy, Peter. We've talked a lot about Peter the last couple weeks. And so we get this episode in Matthew 16 is where we're going to go next. We get this conversation, and Jesus is talking to the disciples. Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We could do this today. We could go walk down the street and say, hey, we just want to know, who do you think Jesus is? Good teacher? Is he God? Is he the Son of God? What do you think about him? So Jesus does this. He kind of gets a poll. He gets the other disciples and says, tell me what people are saying. So in verses 14 and 15 says, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he goes, okay, I got this, you know, survey says, this is who you are. But then he goes, then he asked them, but 
community use. This is the number one question that a good church should be able to answer. This is the most important question. And Peter speaks up in verse 16 and says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living the guy that we've been waiting for all these years, the ones that the prophets and law have told us about. You are that person. You are God. And I say this is the most important question because this is where it all has to start. We have to know what we believe about Jesus in order to know if we're doing church the right way or we're believing the right things. And I, I listen. I don't know if you guys do this. I would encourage you to do it, actually. Listen to people with different opinions. Like, even if you think they're heretics, like, Listen to them with a discerning eye, but like, or a discerning ear, I guess. But like, listen to them and just see what they say. Because when you understand what the other side is saying, then you know how to have a conversation with them. And so what I do sometimes is I'll, I'll, I'll go to podcasts or I'll go to YouTube, whatever. Listen to people I completely disagree with. But here's what I find, too. There are people that I can completely disagree with there, how they do theology, how they view a certain sin, or what I believe is a sin, what they don't think is a sin, that, that kind of thing. But if they can answer this question correctly, if we believe the, the same thing about this question, then at least I know we're kind of on the same team. And we, we at least start at the right place, and then we can kind of move from there. But when they don't answer this question correctly, then I know we're on different teams. Because we have to know who Jesus is. If we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we have to have the same answer as Peter that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus even obviously affirms this answer in verse 17. It says, Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Verse 18. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not so remember two weeks ago when it was Simon, but I can't, I can't, I couldn't stop from saying Peter. This is why, because he gets the name Peter, and so Jesus says, "If you realize this, I'm going to change your name. You're now going to be Rock, and I'm going to build my church, starting with you." But what does that mean? Okay, well, fast forward to Acts two, verse thirty-six. Peter's Peter's preaching. This is after Jesus has died. He has resurrected. He's ascended. He's gone. Day of Pentecost has just happened. The Holy Spirit has arrived, which we talked about last week. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit coming. So now Peter's preaching. He says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain, in verse 36 of Acts 2, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What's Peter doing? Same answer. Same answer he gives to Jesus. He preaches to the people that are around him. Verse 37 says, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him, or to the other disciples, Brothers, what should we do? In verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 and 40, it says, This promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far away. Time out. Guess what? You're in the Bible. This isn't talking about like a long car ride away. It's not what it means when it says far away. It means it's true for the people listening. It means it's true for their children and to all the generations coming. Here says this message of repent and follow Jesus because he's the Messiah is available to all people. And 
all who have been called by the Lord our God. It says, then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41 says, those who believed that Peter, what Peter said, were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000. Here's the amazing thing. Can we just rewind two weeks to the conversation from week five about Peter? Remember where we found Peter? He's in a boat doing his job. Doing the job he thinks he's going to do for the rest of his life. Rabbi who heals his mother-in-law shows up and says, hey, can I preach from your boat? Sure. So he pushes out of the boat. Hey, can we go fishing? Don't really want to, Jesus. We were out there all night. We're fine. You've done some crazy stuff. This is why I say, and I've said it over the last couple weeks, I think to be a true disciple of Jesus, there's got to be a little bit of a journey in this. Because we rewind to where Peter was. He thought his life was set. This is what's going to happen. And you fast forward like three years, and what happens? He's preaching and 3,000 people get saved. Peter never thought that that was a reality. I wonder if more people got saved this day or if he caught more fish that day. Maybe it was exactly the same. Right? They counted them all. It's 3,000 believers. But there's something in there that when Jesus shows up and says, you want to follow me? When we, we have that, remember, that already we're going to say yes when Jesus asks us to do something. That predetermined yes. What can Jesus do? This is what he did when he found Peter. And what happens immediately after Immediately after, Acts 2.42, this is what the church looks like the day later. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. This is what the church looked like. They all start to fellowship together. They spend time together. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching or to teaching or to Jesus' teaching because the apostles have been with Jesus. And they share meals together. They do what we call communion together. And they pray together. Verses 43 to 44. It says, A deep sense of awe came, came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Verses 45 to 46. They sold their property and possessions, shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Verse 47. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So Peter says yes in the boat. Then he, he understands who Jesus is. Then Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And then he's preaching the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people. And then we get 3,000 people just becoming the church. And just engaging together and doing life together. This is where we get the model of church. This is where it comes from. This is what it looks like. Now, we get a conversation about, like, what this is. Like, people will look at this and go, well, see, church should be in a house because they were all in homes. And like, okay, we understand the cultural differences here, right? They weren't going to get in a car and drive 15 minutes to church. It wasn't going to happen. Now, for us, you say, you know, drive 15 minutes to church. You're like, oh, that's not too bad, right? Like, you know, that's, a, that's okay. But for them, it was just a different culture. You lived closer together. You knew the people that were your neighbors. You were all on top of each other and doing the same stuff. So like, yeah, like, let's have meals together. Let's just go to somebody else's house. Let's figure out that. 
by the way, they were also being actively persecuted, so they weren't going to build a giant building and go, here's where we all are, right? That wasn't part of the plan. So they engaged together in homes to be able to have that community together. Change some things culturally. And yeah, we can come together in a bigger building. Now, let's say in any province or uh, culture, we were have a home church. Nothing wrong with that. But my, my point is to say, we're doing these things together, this is how the church can function and what it can look like and how it plays out in our culture. And so we see this from the very first church, from the apostles, creating the church that Jesus had called them to create. Okay, so we understand Jesus and the church are one. So we can't separate the two. We understand that there's going to be friction in church sometimes. It's just going to happen. We have to recognize the church is imperfect. It's not perfect. We understand that this is what the first church looked like. Okay, so what does that what does that mean for us? How do we, as followers of Jesus, love the church much more as Christ loved the church? I said this before, and, and I'll, I'll just say it this way: Discipleship is intentional. Being a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, is an intentional choice we make. Understand that with the church. So I would just say this way: loving the church wholeheartedly is intentional. You can't. You're not going to love the church wholeheartedly by accident. I'm not going to love my wife wholeheartedly by accident. Like I have to actually think about that, process that, plan for that, to understand and to show her that's what I think. The same is true about the church. And I would say this way: when you are a disciple of Jesus, you love what Jesus. to get. 
introduced to one, like all that stuff. Like, I hope that's the idea. Like, we're excited about that. And you get to come in, and it's a, it's a time in your week to just, like, breathe for a minute. And we take your kids downstairs, and you get a minute just to literally sit for an hour and drink your coffee and hang out with them. Like, I hope that's the case. Listen, if church is just the place where we show up to drink coffee and hang out and feel good for an hour a week, we're missing it. Like, there should be that intentionality where we say, I'm going to go and make sure my friends have a good week and see if they need prayer, see how they're doing. I'm going to connect over this thing, and we're going to make sure that this person's taken care of, or if this person's going through a difficult time, we're going to come together, we're going to love them more. But there's an intentionality that as you're sitting with your coffee and with your friends, that there's a thought of, like, how we're going to be the church to one another, how we're going to live sacrificially for one another, how we're going to submit to one another as Paul talked about. So that's a place in our calendar that we show up on Sundays, we show up with intention. Here's the second thing. That love invests generously. Now listen, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what they did in Acts 2, right? What did they do? Sold their stuff so people had the, what they need. Okay? I'm not saying go sell all your stuff. That's not the point. Here's the point. We should be generous with our time, our energy, and our resources. That God has offered us. That we would be generous with that. That we would do that together because when we can work together to be generous, we can do more. Okay? Easy example, the CrossNet food stuff out there. Usually when we go donate that, I think we're in like a three to four hundred pounds of stuff that we donate together, which is awesome. None of us could do that by ourselves. So when we say we're going to come together to do this, to bless a ministry in our community that's then going to bless the people in our community, we can do more together. When we're generous in that way, together, we can do more. We can go further with that. That's what the people in Acts 2 were doing. And so when we come together, we can care for people better than what we could just on our own. And that's an aspect of church, too. So that we would be generous with our, our time and our energy and our resources. Number three, love welcomes openly. I said this before, I'll say it again. I don't care what they believe. Anyone is allowed to walk through those doors. Because then we get to show them what Jesus looks like. And this is what it says in Acts 2. It says that they actually had the favor of the people around them because of what they were doing in their community. The people who didn't know Jesus actually looked on them and said, you guys are helpful and awesome. One of the ways we would love to say this is if we disappeared from our community, would they know us? And what a welcome opening that would be. I get it. Some people may come the same thing as us. Fine. Let's let Jesus do that. Let's just introduce him to Jesus and see what happens. It's welcoming openly. Number four, love forgives regularly. This is the part where when we hurt one another, we've got to forgive. That we would have that predetermined, like we understand Jesus forgave us, so we're going to forgive other people. And we forgive when people hurt our feelings or whatever that might be. And number five, love lives side one another and saying, are you living what the scriptures say? Are you honoring Jesus with the decisions you're making? Because let me, let me know this. even in other places, like like I'll use CrossFit as an example. They all rally around each other. They all encourage each other. They all want to see everybody gain, right? They all want to see that happen. The church should be the same way when it comes to living out being a disciple of Jesus. 
we would encourage one another. We would invest in one another. We would be the ones cheering each other on to do that. And so we live biblically. And if we do this, if we, if we commit and we do this, all five things, we all just commit to do that as a church family, that hurt section is going is to shrivel up a lot more. Because it means that we're going to invest in one another well, we're going to forgive, we're going to be here intentionally, wanting to care about each other, living sacrificially, submitting to one All of that stuff is going to happen. And when we do that with one another, and we invest in each other to live biblically, those bits of hurt are going to start to shrink a little bit. And we're going to build something that's really strong. We're going to be able to do things that maybe we can do. Maybe I'll end up like Peter, right? God will move in a way that we never saw When we fast forward to the end of Scripture in Revelation, we get a picture of, of what it means for the bride and the groom to have a marriage feast. And so in Romans 19, I want to read this really, really briefly, verses 8 and 9. This is talking about the church. It says, She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, this is John, the writer of Revelation, says, write this down. The angel actually stops and says, don't miss this. Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true worthy and faithful. You know, sometimes uh, when we get invited to a wedding, I have three wedding invitations hanging on my office. We get invited to wait. Usually we get invited as a guest. We go over and we sit at the table and we watch blue and all, like the bride and groom. That's not what this is actually talking about. In fact, here's what's true. You and I are invited to the wedding, but not as a guest, as the bride. So don't show up and look at the bride. You know what I mean? You know, I, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've officiated a lot of weddings. Never once have I watched a bride walk in in sweats and a hoodie. Doesn't happen. Because she wants to look the best. Even I've heard of brides going through some very uncomfortable things with her wardrobe just to be able to look her best on that day. There's preparation that happens. There's planning that happens for months. What does Revelation say about the white linen that the church has been given? It represents the good deeds of God's holy means that leading up to this day, guess what? There's going to be some uncomfortable things we have to go through. There's going to be some difficulty. But what makes us look good, the preparation that comes in, it doesn't save us. It's not what saves us. Jesus has already saved us, already paid for us. While we were still sinners, he paid for us as his bride. Fantastic. But then we live a life that's worthy of that love. We try to. What does that mean? It means that we're putting on that fine linen that we've been given because of the work we do together to honor Jesus as we move forward to that wedding day. So we look as gorgeous as we can for when the wedding feast comes. That's what that means when the church walks together. When we come together, we are invited, but we are God's bride. So here's my question. What's your next step in loving the church for Christ? What's your next step? 
where you're going to look at me and go, yeah, Pastor Corey, the pastor is supposed to tell me to come to church, and I'm supposed to do this, and I'm supposed to do that. Okay. But here's why, because in Acts 2, we see that. So when you think about those aspects of church life, attending, serving, giving, investing in relationships, whatever it is, what is your next step in loving the church better? Because if you look at Acts 2, so you can do this on your own. Evaluate your church connectivity or your love of the church by Acts 2. I see what the people in Acts were doing. Here's what they were doing. What are the things I'm not might be two for four, you might be one for four, you might be four for four, which is great. When you look at those things, what are you not doing? If there's something you're not doing, that's your next step in loving the church. Here's, here's what I think this looks like. Okay, let me like project into the future here for a little bit. Here's what excites me if we do this well. When I was growing up, um, and even in the churches I've worked in, we would get to the point where some of the weddings I have in my refrigerator are these kids. Their parents grew up in the church, and those kids get married in that church. Because they, they look around and they see their parents were committed, they wanted to be the church together, they raised their kids in that space, they, they were modeled that by their parents, and then as they get older, they model that for their kids. And there's this generational handing down of the church that happens. When we do this well, so I would love to, right? All those 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 kids that are downstairs, like we fast forward 10, 15 years, and they're running around and being crazy up there as teenagers. But we see them because we decided we were going to stay. I get people move and things happen, but when we invest and we say we're going to be partners in ministry together, we're going to reach our community together. We're going to invest in our relationships together. It gets handed down. It's how the church grows. It's how it multiplies to generations because we love each other well. Yes, it makes it difficult sometimes setting an alarm on a Sunday morning and showing up to teach kids or showing up to open doors or showing up to making coffee or whatever it might be. Sometimes that gets in the way of our schedule.
Thank you. 